versus mics. We are preaching and learning through biblical worship, uh, biblical theology of worship. What does that actually look like? So I'm going to turn your attention to, I'm going to ask you to turn your attention to Deuteronomy chapter 12 as we continue our series. That is our that is where our scripture reading came from. So we read through the, the scriptures. Uh, we read through the entire chapter. And we will be in that chapter throughout. So we won't read it in its entirety uh, as, as we begin. Um, but let us first pray and see what the Lord will teach us about worship. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful, thankful that you have gathered us in this place to call upon your holy name. Father, we ask that you bless this time of worship through the preaching of your word, so that your word, by the power of your spirit, can transform our lives, so that we may be true worshipers. Who, spirit, who worship you in spirit and in truth. Father, give us insight to your truth. Give us conviction by your spirit. Let us honor you through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Have you ever been a part of worship? Or seen it on Instagram or YouTube or TikTok or whatever. That just seemed odd to me. I know I have. I've been a part of many churches personally, and I've seen it. And the church that I grew up in when I was a kid was a Lutheran church, and therefore we had hymnals. Um, we had very structured ordinances by which the, the, the entirety of the service kind of just went and it just became almost mechanical. And when, when the priest, but we had priests in the church, uh, he came up and he told us to stand, we stood. And when he told us to read, we read. And then when he told us to sit down. And then the way we sang, we had hymnals, so we opened a hymnal and then we went to hymn 117 and we, we just sung there was an organ playing and that's kind of a worship and as I grew up and got into more Pentecostal churches you kind of saw the freedom where people are like shouting and, and opening, I mean closing their eyes and raising their hands I've even seen people run around people brought like little horns and, and they just blew it in, in the middle of service and, and then uh, in the middle of worship, I've been two different worship services where the pastor's preaching and somebody says, preach your brother, and it stands up from over there, and the other one stands up from over there. You know, all kinds of different worship services. And I've been to services that are kind of like this, where there is order, there's freedom, there's a combination of both. question is, have you ever wondered why there are so many different kinds of worship? Which one actually pleases God? Which one does God look at and says, that's the one that I want to receive? That's the one that honors me the most. 
And really, our whole series in worship is geared so that we can know what an acceptable worship to God looks like. Because if you worship God in a way that you don't, you don't actually know whether or not He's going to accept it or not, or if you're kind of doubting, then, then you've missed the point. You've wasted your time, your breath, if you're singing out loud, right? And you've dishonored God altogether. So we started the series on worship so that we can know how to be worshipers that the Father desires. And we saw that in our first week, so I'm kind of giving us a, a summary of where we have been. Where first week, I gave it to you up front. We're not seeing what the Bible has to say about worship exhaustively. We're not going, like, we can't go through the Bible and say exhaustively, this is what worship looks like. What we're trying to attempt to do is we're trying to look at a biblical theology, which is going through the, uh, the Bible from Genesis to Revelation in the way that it was revealed so that we can have a framework of what worship is. And we noticed that we... We pointed out the first week that worship is at the center of what God, um, who God is. Worship is at the center of who you are. And God sees worship as being so valuable that he gives the first two commands to his people about worship. And then we also saw that we need to have a high view of God if we are going to worship God. And in order to see God as, as, as have a high value, a high view of God, we need to come to Christ, who teaches us that we must worship God in spirit and in truth. And last week we saw that our attitude matters when we worship God. We must worship God in faith, as Abel did, and not be so proud and pride-filled as Cain was. As we looked at that last week. And this week, we are going to look at the scripture before us, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, where Moses is laying down the terms that God has determined for his people to watchfully, vigilantly, carry out their religious practice of worship. So this whole chapter is, if you notice, is sandwiched between how watchful and careful we need to be in our religious practice of worship, in our corporate worship. When I say it's sandwiched between, I really mean it, by the way. Look down with me to chapter 12, verse 1. These are the statutes and the judgments which you shall be careful to do in the land. Now look at the last chapter. I mean the last verse. Verse 32. Whatever I'm commanding you, you shall be careful to do. Notice. And then, by the way, it's all interwoven throughout the entirety of the chapter. Be careful to do this as I've commanded you. Be careful to follow this as I've commanded you. Not just for you, but for your sons, as we read earlier, and we'll see in a, in a second. 
So this is really important for us to be careful, to be vigilant, hence the title. We need to have a vigilant worship life. And as we go into this, I want us to notice that they're not doing, they're not doing this worship. Here, Moses is talking to the people of Israel, people of God, as they're getting ready to go into their promised land. But notice what he says. He's not, he's, he's telling them, this is how you should worship. He's not telling them, you should worship this way so that you can enter into God's promises. I want you to, I want you to see that. These are the statutes, verse 1 and 2. And the judgments which you shall be careful to do in the land of which Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days you live on earth. Notice that. He has already given this land to them. Once you get in there, after you get in there, this is what you should do. The assumption here is that God's people will do worship in His rest, in the land of the promise, after they get saved. After they receive and possess what Yahweh has given to them. So when we talk about how we worship, we're not worshiping God in the way that He desires to be worshipped or according to these terms. And we're not being vigilant in our worship so that we can be saved. We are worshiping Him vigilantly because we are saved. So I wanted us to, to know that before we even got into seeing what Moses lays down. I'm so used to preaching the New Testament. I always want to, always, Paul comes to mind, right? Anytime I, I want to talk about a writer, it's like, I have to. So, having said that, in this passage, what I want to draw out to you from, from the passage, what I want to show you is five responsibilities for vigilant worship that will help you stay the course in worshiping God as spirit and truth. Five responsibilities of vigilant worship that will help you stay the course of true worship. So let's look at the first responsibility that Moses lays out for the people of Israel. The first responsibility is not to urge idolatry. It's to purge idolatry. There's a penis in there. I think I borrowed one earlier when I said someone said the P word. I must have borrowed a P. It's to purge idolatry. Look, look at what he says to, to them in verse 2. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods. Utterly destroy. Purge entirely is God's command. Not partially. Not mostly. But what God is commanding Israel is a complete extermination of every form of worship that is not God's. 
every sort of material or mystical ideological worship. And here I draw this out from the text as well. Look at what he says. He says, okay, go and destroy on the high mountains or under the every green tree. Those are material kinds of worship, if you will. The altars, the sacred pillars, which is more mystical in, in a sense. Graven images that are more ideological. So every kind of material, mystical, ideological worship that is not according to God's desire has to be destroyed completely. That's what God tells his people. That's what God is teaching us. We need to purge any kind of worship, any kind of receiving and reciprocating of worth that is material in nature or mystical or supernatural or spiritual in nature, or it can be an ideological one, philosophical one, needs to be purged out completely. I mean, the first commandment relates this very thing, right? In Exodus chapter 20, when God, for the first time, gives the Israelites his commandments, the first commandment, the first two commandments is, you shall not have any other gods but Yahweh. You should not have any god before me. And you should not make any graven image or you shouldn't do any kind of worship. So he, he forbids idolatry. And in the context of Deuteronomy, Moses repeats this to the new generation in, in chapter 5, verse 7, because <coughs> complete and utter destruction of idolatry is necessary for worship that it honors God. And that is our first responsibility. This is not negotiable to God. This is a non-negotiable. You can't keep your gods or your idols and come to worship God. We'll see that here in a second. His people, Israel, and then now us, by the way, it'll put them to the test. Just a generation later, if you know your Bible stories at all, he tells them, hey, destroy every other god, every other kind of worship in the land that you go in. Just a generation later, they will put him to a test. Because they did not heed this instruction. In Judges chapter 2, verse 10 to 13, here's what we see. And all the generation also were gathered. This is after Joshua dies. They go, they go in and they inherit the land. And here, here they are in the land that God has promised them. And they're living there. And then Joshua leads the conquest. And everybody goes into their place. They're settled. And then Joshua gets old and dies. And all the generation with Joshua also was gathered to their, to their fathers. And there arose another generation after whom, after, after them, who did not know Yahweh or even the work which he had done for Israel. And this very next generation does what? Verse 11. Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the eyes of Yahweh and served Baals. Idols. 
and they forsook Yahweh, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. That's what they do. Immediately after he tells them not to do this. Well, not immediately, after a generation after. And they bowed themselves down to, to other gods. They provoked Yahweh to anger. So they forsook Yahweh and served Baal and the Asherah. By the way, this is not something that we can look back because we get so tempted to look back at the Old Testament um, accounts and then just say, hey, you know what? This is, this is what Israel did. We're not Israel. That's an Old Testament. We live in a new covenant. But this is also reflected in the put off and put on language that Paul uses in the New Testament. If you look at it, I think it's up there. If you look at Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, as we saw last, last week, therefore, he says, I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living and holy and pleasing to God, which is a spiritual service of worship. So he's talking about worship. Look at what verse 2 says. Do not be conformed to this world. I think the NIV says, to the patterns of this world. Any pattern that is spiritual, that is philosophical, that is material, do not be conformed to that, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may approve what, is the, will of, what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, 17-24, the same, the same thing. That you will no longer walk just as the Gentiles also walk. He tells the church. Down in verse 21 and 20 and 21, he says, But you do not learn Christ in this way. The reason why you don't walk the way the Gentiles walk, that you must utterly destroy any kind of idolatry, is because you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard of him and were taught of him, if you indeed have inherited eternal life through him, is what Paul is saying, verse 22, lay aside in reference to your former conduct, the old man. Verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new man. So as a result of you being saved, there's this putting off and putting on the Christian is called to do. So you and I must utterly destroy all kinds of idolatry or any form of worship in our lives. Personally, when you go home, when you're living life day to day, and also in our congregational worship, in this setting, in the way that we're worshiping God together on Sundays. We must avoid, we must utterly destroy all kinds of idolatry that is not divinely prescribed. And we do so, by the way, not by the power of our own might. We do so by the Spirit. And this is what Paul says in Romans 8, 12, and 13. I think it's up there as well. So then, brothers... We are under obligation not to the flesh, 
to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if, if by the Spirit you are putting to death. Notice that language. By the Spirit you are putting to death. The practices of the body. Right? That's, that's the application. We are putting to death. We are utterly destroying any kind of form of worship that is not godly, that is fleshly, that is that comes from the body, that, that, that is not reflecting God's worth. We are putting to death by the Spirit. You will live. But I want to warn you that just utter destruction of uh, idol worship or any other form of worship that is not divinely prescribed is not enough. It's necessary, but not enough. God's people are also responsible, which is the second responsibility we will see. They're responsible to seek and worship him on his terms. Look at Deuteronomy 12 and 4. You shall not do thus towards Yahweh your God, but you shall seek Yahweh at the place which Yahweh your God will choose from all your tribes. They have to seek him in a place that he would choose. Here, again, we see the sovereignty of God in worship. Not only is he sovereign in an abstract way where we can't really really know it's like okay we know God is in charge right everybody in here would agree amen God is in charge right everybody yeah but is he in charge in a like a macro way like we kind of know at a greater level that he's in charge and worship what we see here is God is not just sovereign in, in an abstract way, but he actually superintends the very place where he should be worshipped. He superintends how you should be worshipping. He is so mindful, if you will, he is so concerned to even get involved in worship, the very intricate details, including the very place. If you want to, to read that, just read Exodus chapter chapters 25 through 31. That's six, six chapters. Details. To the very centimeter of the very coat that the priest would wear. Every single measurement God gives to Moses in those six chapters. The intricate details of worship, how and where and who should be worshiping him, he is concerned in that. He's not just concerned about how you worship him. You know, God knows my heart. That's, that's what we run to in this day. He is concerned who, where they should worship, who should lead worship, and where the tabernacle should be. And we see the same, a similar kind of Instruction given in First Kings chapter five to eight, where Israel later would worship him in the temple. And 
and those who would seek to worship God in a place where he did not specify. Like Saul in 1, King, in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Where God tells him to kill everybody and he keeps Agog and a few choice flock. And then he goes and he actually says, oh, you know, Samuel's late. So I'm going to go ahead and, and try to worship him myself. And then kingdom is taken away from him in and then he later on in chapter in chapter 28 he goes and he tries to find a medium someone that someone he thought was too spiritual enough to inquire from Yahweh I mean he didn't go to inquire from Satan according to the account but he does so in a way that God did not command him I mean, look at Exodus chapter 32, which is fascinating when I think about this. It just puzzles me. What were they thinking? You go from Exodus 25 to 31, God has given Moses the command of how he needs to be worshipped, right? The next chapter, you would think Moses came down the mountain and then did according to what God commanded him. That's what you would expect. Then the very next chapter, they build this. They're like, oh, Moses is late. We want to worship God our way. So because we want to worship God our way, you know what we're going to do? Everybody just, just give me what you got. It don't matter if it's gold, silver, whatever. Just, just, give, just give it to me. Forget that we got this gold and silver from, by God's providence in the first place, but just give it to me. And we're going to give it to Aaron. Second in command. Hey, Aaron, go ahead and form something for us. What should we make? Oh, you know what? In Egypt, the cow, the calf. That's what they worship. Let's, let's form that one. And he goes and he melts the gold and he forms it up and he, put his, he puts it up there. And everybody gathers together and then says, This is Yahweh who delivered you from the hand of Israel. Who do they call him to? Yahweh, God. That's who they want to worship. How do they do it? Not in the terms that was laid in chapters 25 to 31, but on their own terms. And you see what they got met with. Was opposition from God. So our responsibility is to worship God on his own terms. This is what we see here. And we also have the testimony of our Lord in John chapter 4. A familiar passage where he talks to the woman at the well, and she says, "Hey, I'm I'm some I'm some I'm from Samaria, and you know my father said we should go and worship God in this mountain. Your people say that you need to go to Jerusalem to worship Him." And Jesus says, "He would be worshipped in spirit and in truth only. That's God's term. So you and I must conform." to this way of worship, if we are to actually be vigilant worshipers. And as we, are as we conform to this way of worship, we need to, to be responsible to the third responsibility we see here, is to avoid man-centered worship. Look at verse 8 with me, Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 8. You should not do at all what we are doing today. What, what were they doing 
in that day. Every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. We should avoid worship that seems right in our own eyes. Which goes very well with what the second point is. If we're going to worship God on his terms, then we can't worship God based on what we think is right. This is a word for our time, by the way. Where pragmatic worship has taken root in the church. Where because it seems right, because it's kind of like, you know, it works for them. You know, you see all these mega churches and they're worshiping them in this way. So we should adopt it. And, and it doesn't matter. And you see what, what they're, the growth movement in, in, in this section of corporate, corporate America. Let's get that and adopt that. And we get that in a little bit because it looks, it looks fine. What Moses is saying, we have been doing this in the wilderness, and if you know your, your Bible, you know what happened to Israel in the wilderness. Because they tried to do things that seemed good in their eyes. They lived in the wilderness for 38 years because of this. They could have, had, they could have been there already. But they try to do what's good, what, what seems good in their eyes, and they get disciplined. And even in that discipline, they didn't repent. They just go around and keep doing it and doing it and doing it. This is year 40, where we pick up this passage. And Moses is saying, this is what we've been doing. Don't do it after you get into the land. Be careful not to do this. Avoid man-centered worship. Once you get in the promised land, you no longer can worship him in a way that, is, that seems right in your own eyes. And at the heart of doing whatever is right in our own eyes is a sense of self-centeredness, right? We're thinking about ourselves as being the judge and end-all and be-all of what worship should look like. We tend to become the one deciding what is right or wrong. That's what it means to, to do things whatever seems right in your eyes. You're, you're the one that's judging whether what you're doing is right or wrong. And this happens often when you experience safety. When you're comfortable, then you kind of, you got, you got room to explore. And to kind of just be like, oh, maybe if I did this, I think this is right. And this is why I think Moses writes um, in, in verse 9, For you have not yet come into the resting place. In verse 10, Now you will cross the Jordan and live in the land which Yahweh God is giving you to inherit. And he will give you rest from enemies around you, so you will live in security. When you're living in the security, make sure that your worship does not become self-centered. When you have an air-conditioned Worship room like this, nice sound systems, and you know, whatever, don't make it about yourself. You have a multi-million dollar sanctuary and light systems and smokes and everything. You're, you're, you're living very secure. Nobody's persecuting you. Nobody's knocking on your door saying if you're a Christian, you're going to jail. When you're doing, when you're living in that kind of security, don't make it about yourself. 
and this is evident in Judges chapter 17, where we see the story of Micah, where Israel was, at the time, doing whatever was right in their own eyes. That's in verse 6. But Micah comes, and he steals money from his mom, and he tells her, I stole your money. And she's like, all right, keep it. You know what? Not only keep it, just worship God with it. And he's like, okay, I'm going to worship God with it. And he takes the money that he, he steals, he melts it, and he makes a graven image, and then he finds a priest, and he brings him home, and he tries to do whatever is right in his own sight entirely of that tribe gets judged because it's man-centered worship when you feel secure. So let us, by God's grace, be vigilant and responsible not to make worship about how we feel and who we are and about us. I was reading a book by H.B. Charles on worship. That's what it's called. Shout out to the devil. And he, in that, in that book, um, he, he talks about a pastor who finishes a worship service and he goes down and, and he hears one of his congregants complain about how he didn't really like the worship today. You know, most of you can resonate probably with this. I didn't like worship today. It was too long, you know. It was too... So for whatever reason, this guy did not like worship, and he was complaining about it, and he overhears him, and he walks up to him, and he was just like, Whew, you didn't like worship today. He says, no, I didn't like worship. Well, I'm glad that we weren't worshiping you. I'll be here all week. Right, and we, we weren't worshiping you, dude. Like, we weren't giving you worship. Like, it's not here for you to, to say if it's good or not. You're not the one that's being worshipped. It's God who's being worshipped. That's the point. We cannot make worship about us. Instead, we need to focus on our responsibility, which is the fourth responsibility I want to draw your attention to, to enjoy worship. And this is, I mean, I, I almost want to go right into the application part of this. Because I can talk about how most of you are not enjoying your worship experience when you come together to worship. Because you've made it about you. But I'll reserve that for later and for the Word of God to do to work in you, not a spirit. But we are responsible to have a joyful experience of worship. Look with me in verse 6 and 7. And there you shall bring your burnt offering, your sacrifices, your tithes and contributions of your hand, your votive offerings, free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd. We're talking about worship here, right? Congregational worship at that. Verse 7. There also you and your household shall eat before Yahweh, your God, and be glad. And rejoice as you're worshiping. It's not just in 6 and 7. He repeats it again in verses 11 and 12. It's almost identical. And you should be glad 
Uh, I'm sorry, verse 11. Then it will be in that place which Yahweh your God will choose for his name to dwell. There you shall bring that I am commanding you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, the tithes, the contribution of your hand, and all your choice votive offerings which you will vow to Yahweh. And we come together and worship. This is what you should do. Verse 12. And you shall be glad before Yahweh. You should rejoice before Yahweh. Worship should be something that you enjoy and have joy in. Be, be glad to worship God. As we saw last week, attitude does matter to God in the way that you worship Him. When you worship, essentially, and I, want, I want to draw your attention to what he says, before Yahweh your God. Be glad before Yahweh your God. That word, before Yahweh your God, is saying, when you're in his presence, when you come in the presence of God, what should you be? Angry? Sad? Depressed? I mean, you have God and you missed. You worship, at worship time, you're literally coming in the presence of God and what should, what, what should your heart's attitude be? Joy, gladness. Not like Cain. As we saw last week. When you worship, you're in the presence of God. And in His presence, your worship should draw out this gladness. When you worship according to the blessings of God, by the way. Look at verse 15 with me. However, you may sacrifice and eat meat with any of your gates. Right? There's freedom, even. Whatever you desire, there's liberty. According to the blessings of Yahweh. When you worship according to the blessings of God, there is so much freedom that you can eat whatever you want to, whatever, however you want to. Just make sure that you're doing it according to the blessings of God. When you worship in His presence, you are granted certain liberties, even in your day-to-day -day life. Most of us, most of you might even be thinking about, I know I'm included, that worship is so restrictive. Worshiping God and being a Christian and being completely given to Him and just avoiding all that idolatry and worshiping Him in His, in his honest terms and not making it about ourselves, that becomes restrictive to us. No, it's freeing. You have freedom. Even though verse 17 and 18 puts the guardrails on, on, on vigilant worship, just don't eat the blood. Make sure you're doing this. Don't eat that part that is supposed to be given to God. Make sure that you're doing this and within the guardrails, within the context of what God says. But as long as you're there, you are free. I mean, freedom brings joy, doesn't it? Isn't that what draws us to the world falsely, that is? Because the world tries to promise you the freedom. You can be free from the tyranny of religion. Come and follow me and go on a pride parade somewhere. Flaunt your sin. So you can be free. 
You can speak freely however you want to to anybody without no kind of, just be free and you can enjoy that. That's what the world promises you. Because you know in your heart that when there's freedom, there's joy attached to it. And God is saying, my freedom, my presence would give you freedom, which then would cause you to be glad. But not autonomously. That's where the guardrails come in, in verse 18, 17, 18, and even in verse 21. But according to his blessings. And his blessings are so, so amazing that they even account for exceptional circumstances. Look at verse 21. It tells you, hey, if, if it's too far away from you to come to my place of worship, as long as you're doing it the way that I said to do it, you're free to do it. I mean, that's what we worry about, right? The fine prints. Uh, but what if I did this way? What if this happens? What if that happens? That's the excuse that the flesh wants to give us. But his blessings extend even to the exceptional circumstances in our life. You can enjoy worship in the presence of God, knowing that His ways have accounted for every need in every situation. So don't make it something that you're doing forcefully, against your will, against your best interest even. When you come to worship, are you worshiping Him? As if you're doing it against your best interest, like you're being forced to. You know, somebody stands up here and says, let's stand and worship and sing to God how great he is. As if somebody's forcing you, like, as if you thinking how great God is is against your best interest. Like that's going to do you harm or something. But God says, rejoice. Be glad in my presence as you worship me. Because there, there's freedom. And when you're, worship, when you're careful to worship God on His terms and engage in this vision of worship, His presence will bring you joy. And you will rejoice in worship. And you can avoid double-minded worship. That's our fifth responsibility. We ought to avoid double-minded worship through working through this long passage. Look at verse 29 through 31. When Yahweh your God cuts off before you, 
the nations which you are going to dispossess, you dispossess them and inhabit their land. Beware lest you be ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed before you, unless you inquire after their God, saying, How do this nation serve their God so that I also may do likewise? Israel here is commanded to be vigilant against being entrapped into idol worship. Moses tells them, do not even inquire about how other forms of worship work. I don't even, don't even go and research on Google. Don't go to google.com and say, how does this work? Don't ask Siri or Alexa. to experiment and explore alternative worship because that's going to make you double-minded. You should avoid trying to harmonize some other way of worship with the way that God says he needs to be worshipped. Oh, this works and that works. Here's the temptation, right? Curiosity. Our curiosity is the first temptation. And you guys know what curiosity did to, did to the cat, right? Yep. Amen. I'm not, I'm, I'm not a cat guy, so I'm not, I'm not ashamed to say curiosity did. I'm a dog person myself. But the temptation is that we may see no harm of it. That's what arouses our curiosity. We may see hey, the way that they're doing it over there and the way that this religion or this worldview or this philosophy is doing it, the way that the world is doing it, I don't see any harm in it. We may even notice that it, it may even be working for some people. We may say, if we're really super spiritual, we may even say that, hey, the Bible explicitly doesn't forbid this, so I guess we're free to do this this way. So no harm, no foul in researching about and adapting this other way of worship. This, according to our text, is double-minded worship. In one mind, we try to worship God, Yahweh. With another mind, we're trying to worship the culture, the worldview the other religion, the way that they do things. That's what double-mindedness is. It's like, you can't, you can't settle. You're bouncing before, between one or the other. Which one do I go? And that's a confusing place to be. You can't find joy in that. God, God is dishonored by that. You and I must be careful not to be ensnared in this kind of worship. The reason... You don't have to make it up. You don't have to take my word for it. Look at what, what the Bible says. The reason why he does not want you to go and inquire after any other gods and ask, how do these nations serve their gods so that I can go do likewise? The reason for that is because, verse 31, you should not do this towards Yahweh your God for every abominable act which Yahweh hates, they have done for their gods. That's why. Whatever they do, whatever other 
way of worship that the culture, other false religions, and other worldviews provide to us, even tempt us to adapt it to us, God has judged it already. He hates it. Not my words, his own words. Because they have done abominable things. I mean, this is what Joshua tells Israel as he's getting ready to die, really, in Joshua 24, verses 14 and 15. And this is a very familiar passage, at least a portion of the passage. You might even have it in your house when you first walk in. Like that's, that's something that most Christians put in. As soon as you walk in, you see this verse, Joshua 24, 15. But I'm going to read it so I can give you context. Joshua 24, 14 and 15. So now, he tells Israel, Fear Yahweh and serve him in integrity and in truth. Sound like somebody you know, another Yahshua I know. Right? Jesus says, Serve him, worship him in truth and in spirit and in integrity and truth. To put away the gods which your father serves beyond the river in Egypt and serve Yahweh. And here's the charge that he puts before Israel. And here's the charge that I want to put before you right now. If you, sorry about that, if it is evil in your sight to serve Yahweh, if it is evil in your sight to worship God, choose for yourselves today. Not tomorrow, not next week, not yesterday. Today, choose for yourself whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your father served which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. So you choose. If you don't want to worship God vigilantly in the way that he commands in his word, if you don't want to have this vigilant worship life, you choose. Choose somebody else, or choose God. No double-mindedness. It's either this one or that. There's no gray area in between. And he says this. This is the, the part of the scripture that you know. As for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. Is that, is that, a, is that your, How many people got that in their house? As for me and my house, we will, we will serve the Lord? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of people have it in their house. If, you don't, if, you, if you've never noticed it, go, go home and see what your interior de decoration adjusts. I'm sure you are. And the Lord himself... The Lord Jesus Christ reminds us of this truth in Matthew 6, 24. There's no double-mindedness in the kingdom of God. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. So you can't serve God and wealth or God and mammon or God or money. It's either one. There's no double-mindedness. So we must be careful and be vigilant to worship in this way. Here's the catch. Not close. The catch is every instruction that God lays out in this passage. His people could not do it. Israel was not able to keep this law perfectly. Here's the catch. I mean, read the rest of the New Testament. I mean, the Old Testament. 
right? This is this is the law, last book of the, the Torah that we're reading, that we're reading, and then it goes into the prophets, and the entirety of the prophets tells us, hey, they weren't able to keep this law. The writings, the, his, the history books, also tells us this. They weren't obey, they weren't obedient to this. And you and I are not necessarily exempt. We cannot do that in and of ourselves. We can't be vigilant in our worship in and of ourselves. No matter how vigilant, no matter how careful we are in and of ourselves, we are incapable of worship and perfection. We can't do it. So what must we do? What must you do? Look to Christ who utterly destroyed every other kind of worship. Look at Christ, through whom God is pleased, the Father is pleased, through whom you come to the Father. That's the place that you worship Him, right? If, if you want to worship Him, no one can come to the Father except through me, Jesus says. If you want to come to the Father and worship Him, and the place that He determines... Who is that place? Who is that person? That place is really a person. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. We must look to Him. Because we constantly fail to seek God and worship Him on His terms. We always find a way to make worship about ourselves. It's too long. It's too short. It's too slow. It's too fast. It's too loud. Too dark. Too bright. Too something. I'm too tired. Too hungry. Too sleepy. Whatever. Christ is the one we need to look to. The one who accomplished the will of the Father perfectly. Who said, my food is, is to do my Father's will. We don't always worship God with joy. But Christ joyfully and gladly fulfilled the purposes that his Father in heaven has set. And every requirement of the law to the very jot and tittle, I mean, I'm talking about like an apostrophe and a period, to that small, minute detail of the law he fulfilled it, we need to look to Christ. We struggle with our loyalty and worship. You know, we're loyal on Sunday mornings, Sunday evenings. Some of you might be loyal to the commanders. Some of you to Arsenal, Tottenham even, I heard. Some of you to Facebook, uh, not maybe not Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, a loyalty, YouTube. We struggle in our loyalty to worship God. But Christ never not even for one second forgot who his loyalty was to. So we need to look to Christ. We are to be vigilant worshipers. Not to us, not to our actions, not to our performance. So we look to Christ who enables us by the power of his spirit to be vigilant worshipers of the Father who worship him in spirit and in truth. And if you are here, Today, 
and you're trying to accomplish these responsibilities by your own power, I have news for you. That's a fool's errand. Stop it. I mean, I'm saying that lovingly. Repent. Turn and believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and look to him who would make you a vigilant worshiper. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you've given us this time to, to study your word, to hear from you, to learn from you, to worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, it is such a privilege that we don't get to do these things in our own might and our own power, but by your Spirit who indwells us, who has been given to us as a result of the completed work of your Son, Jesus Christ, who was born of a virgin, lived a life of perfection, died death that he did not deserve on our behalf received the wrath that was due for us and in turn gave us his righteousness his perfection we are only to look to him in faith and repentance so father we look to him he brings us to you we look to him who we are preparing to take as he commanded his ordinance of worship. As we come before you and prepare our minds and our hearts to take part of his table, Lord, we ask that our worship would be vigilant as a result of his work in and through us. And the Spirit would guide us into this kind of worship. Joyfully, humbly, looking to Christ worship you, O Father. We ask you these things in his name. Amen. <coughs>